Awesome. Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Welcome back to Author News Weekly. Thanks for joining us. I've decided that I think that we are the only podcast with softer hands than Will Smith. I'm Ari McGee with the softest hands of all being joined by Mr. Jim Heskett. Hello. And Nick Thacker. Hello. What's going on, gents? How you guys doing? Pretty good. Better than Chris Rock. <laughs> Amazing. He's so I, we, we shouldn't date these because Roland will get mad if they come out True. like more than 15 minutes after we record it. Mm-hmm. And you just dated it by saying Will Smith. Now we know when it happened. Yes, yes, it's true. It's true. Because I know um, we, we know for a fact that like something else will happen this week that will take America by storm and mm-hmm. we will all forget about Chris Rock and Will Smith. Yeah. I just can't I just can't help but critique it from a, a technical point of view, right? <laughs> like obviously the slap was pretty weak. He didn't put a lot of mustard on that slap, you know what I mean? But you could tell he trained when he was doing Ali because when he delivered the slap, he had his left up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He was ready yeah, for that yeah, yeah. right, that overhand right that was coming. And, uh, you know, that was about the only thing that impressed me about the slap. But I have to give him credit for that. <laughs> they didn't want to break his hand, right? Yeah. Could you be more disrespectful than slapping someone? Be mm-hmm. honest. You would rather eat a right hand than eat an open hand slap, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's probably mm-hmm. fair. Yeah, that's I probably would. fair. I would. The disrespect <laughs> is palpable. But. All right, guys. We'll leave these two cats alone. And I think that we could get into the news. Seamless. Very impressed. Very impressed. All right, guys. This first story is going to be tough with the two of you guys here to talk about because you don't, to my knowledge, you guys don't work with editors as much as uh, some of our counterparts do. And so we're going to see what we can still get through because I know that you guys are familiar with the process and you can still help us through the situation. So this story is coming to us from writers, helping writers net, and it is best practices for working with an independent editor. Now it's written by Lisa Poiso, 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 sorry for Poisson is fish in French. Poisson, maybe it's it's French. Uh, Lisa the fish. Now I'm envisioning like this uh, 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 woman who's got like buckets full of wet cement in her backyard. She's ready to drown people. Okay, so Lisa the fish. Author the concept. Oh man. Okay, so I guess I guess what I want to do is go through this, and you guys tell me if what you're reading doesn't ring true or if you would say something different about it. She says that before you edit, you can have your agreements about the business details of your project to protect you both. Now, is this something that you guys ever bothered with if and when you used editors in the past or no? I didn't. I think it's a good idea, though. The editors that I've worked with have been friends, which doesn't mean that a contract isn't important. I just was too lazy to do one. I think it is wise to have even a simple boilerplate. You're going to edit my stuff. I'm going to send you money. Something that just just spells it out would be really wise so that both people know what's going to happen. And specifically payment terms, if the editor doesn't do it, you you get 
your money back or something. That would be wise. Okay. Yeah, when I've worked with editors before, like Nick, it's it's been people that I knew. I've never gone like gone on Upwork and hired an editor, or gone on Fiverr and hired an editor. When I had my Kindle Fiverr. Press book, I worked <laughs> with whatever they assigned me. But I, 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 I a book in the English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, buyer beware on Fiverr. There's some real professionals doing real professional work on Fiverr, and there's also a lot of garbage on Fiverr. That's right. <laughs> Right on. Okay. So then that kind of what you guys said may bleed over into question number two. Now, one of the most prevalent questions that we hear from new authors is NDAs and how do we make sure that the editor doesn't steal our work and things like that. And Lisa's uh, point of this is that you probably don't really need an NDA because uh, your work's legally copyrighted from the moment you commit it to print, making NDAs cumbersome and often a sign of professional mistrust. Do you guys think that's an accurate statement or no? I agree with it. I think NDAs are, they're not useless, but they're just almost impossible. I've heard from people who have been lawyers or are currently lawyers that NDAs are almost impossible to uphold either way. And and I think it's, the, the trick is if you get to the point where it needs to be upheld, you're, you've already lost. There's already, there's a fight happening and you're already going to be screwed either out of money or your, your content or whatever. But yeah. I, don't, I wouldn't ever worry about an NDA if it were just me. I've signed them and I've sent them to people and had them signed. And every time I'm like, this is, there's no, I'm not going to actually follow through with this if somebody breaches it because I don't have, I don't want to hire a lawyer and go through all the rigmarole. And the truth of the matter is, yeah, the only reason you would do an NDA with an editing thing is because you just want to protect your book and it's already been copyrighted the moment you committed it down and timestamped it. So I think it's unnecessary. Jim, I'm not sure if you have an NDA with Nick from some work you guys have done in the past, but if you do, feel free to break it because he just said that he will not protect it no matter what. So <laughs> Good to know. I'm going to keep that in my back pocket. <laughs> okay. So let's go on to the next one. What do we got here? What do we got here? Most editors require a deposit. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay. Let's talk about hitting your schedule with your editor. Okay. Now, how, how big of a deal is it to make sure that you get your book to your editor when you say you're going to get your book to the editor? Because I hear people sometimes talk about, Oh, I had this and I had that. And I'm going to, I'm going to ask my editor for an extension and all that. Jim, what do you think? What kind of trouble are you going to get into if you're not hitting your deadlines? It depends. mainly depends on whether or not you have that pre-order up already on Amazon. If you have that pre-order up on Amazon, then everything is set in stone and things need to happen when they're supposed to happen or there could be trouble. But if you don't have that, I don't like missing deadlines. I always like to say, I don't play the pre-order game. I don't do that dance with death with the pre-order on Amazon. Nick likes to do what I know. Um, I don't do it anymore. I've died too many times. <laughs> Respawn. <laughs> exactly. I keep my own deadlines and anybody I work with who is going to miss deadlines it's not going to be somebody that I work with for very long. But it's pretty amazing this time we live in where if you want to find out about a prospective editor, you can. It's very easy to go onto our social circles on Facebook or other places, forums and that kind of thing, and find out any writer beware stuff that you need to know. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's true. I recommend Readsy. Okay. Finding out about editors and all that. I know we're not talking about where to find editors, but... It's a tight, Ricardo runs a tight ship. He's a good friend and uh, they do some good stuff over there too. So 
Always got to recommend that when we're talking to editors. There you go. There you go. Okay. Now, number 12, I think, is is interesting because I know that both of you guys are like avowed Scrivener users. And most editors that I've dealt with always work in Microsoft Word. So is there any workaround to that? Or are you guys just exporting from Scrivener and putting it into Word if you were to give it to an editor? Yeah, I haven't uh, I haven't met an editor yet who will work within Scrivener. That's always Word, and then you just usually I just go from there to Vellum because once the point I export it's Word, I'm not going to put it back into Scrivener. I dig it. I dig it. <clears throat> yeah, the reason uh, Word is popular for, with editing is because the track changes feature is actually really good. I say actually because a lot of the other features in Word suck. And there's too many of them. Easy. Um, which is why we like Scrivener to write in. Easy. But yeah, you can export, you can compile it out to a, a docx file and then open it in Word and go back and forth with the editor. So if I'm doing that, like uh, with Conundrum, when we do that, we've got a process where whatever the author writes in is fine. We can open the file and we always bounce it out to a doc file and that becomes a working final because we can do track changes, we can compare the two documents, whatever. And then when that's done, we go to Vellum, and then Vellum becomes the final working file. So that means if, if our beta team comes back with changes or whatever, we're going to open the Vellum file and do it all in there. So this, it took me a while to like kind of land on that. I think that's what Jim's process is. It's frustrating to have more than one final underscore, final dot final. But <laughs> it, it as long as I know, okay, the Vellum file is going to be the most up-to-date, accurate one. So if I'm making changes to it, let's dump it in there. That's the final place before I export it to a format that's going to get read by the reader. So there's no reason to go back to a Scrivener or Word file. Okay, that makes sense. And now I'm not going to go through the rest of these. They'll be in the show notes for people that want to get a primer on what to expect when working with an editor. But I am going to ask you guys this, okay? And now, Jim, maybe speak from experience when you did work with an editor. Nick, maybe speak from your your new publishing kind of experience because you're like an editor as you're looking at these people's manuscripts and stuff what do you guys tell people who are concerned that an editor will try to change your voice okay because i know that when i before i found the editor that i use i solicited probably 20 or 30 of them out there because i wanted to see who would give me the edit that i liked and there was a there was a a, a decent number of them who I feel stepped on my writing style very heavily, and so I didn't use them. Jim, what do you think? What kind of tips would you have someone uh, that's concerned about keeping their voice intact? What would you ignore? What would you take to heart coming from an editor? The nice thing is you're paying this person to offer suggestions, and you're free to accept or reject any of the suggestions as you see fit. My experience working with editors was only really a light touch. I've never had an editor who really marked up my work with a serious red pen that I felt like it it was offensive. But I guess the thing to do here is request a sample edit and give them something that's really voicey <laughs> and see what they say. That's probably what I would do. Mr. Thacker? I think, so there's three different largely three different types of editors. You got the dev editor, the developmental stuff. Those are, those are going to be the guys that mostly would change a voice. I would think the copy editors and line editors just aren't working with enough yeah, copy at the, at a time to be able to change that much. I would think, I think authors that say they're worried about an editor changing their voice sound a little too precious to me. And they're probably not good writers to begin with. 
if if they're if all the editors are coming back with drastic changes that actually change the stylistic purpose of the prose, I think that writer probably sucks. Most of the editors that are that I've worked with that are dev editors, they make changes that make the book read better. That's their job. Like they're not trying to change my voice. They're not really doing that. That being said, I don't usually enlist a dev editor because they're very expensive. And I've found that they, while they may improve the, the work, they don't actually help it sell better. And so it actually ends, ends up being money that doesn't get you know earned back. So I, yeah, I typically shy away from the dev editors. I think they're great. They're good people, but they just, they're too expensive for what they do. Yeah. So I don't know. The whole voice thing is funny to me because I don't even know what a voice is in writing. I don't know if you use like snappy sentences and don't actually talk about what you're talking about. Does that make your voice like Ernest Hemingway or does that just make you bad? I guess it depends on how many people buy it, <laughs> you know, how many people review it. Yeah, it was weird. I remember I had a scene because they were just these were all copy editors. I remember I had a scene where uh, the character like got out of the car and stretched because the car was too small for him. You know what I mean? And one of the people that I solicited said struck out like whatever he stretched and whatever and put like he stood up his knees and back cracking like a bowl of Rice Krispie treats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I like, I stopped reading. I was like, okay, that's weird. Cause I, I don't think that makes sense, but it was just like weird stuff like that. Sometimes they just write. I think a lot of times when you have the editor, that's also an author, sometimes they want to put their spin into things a little too much. And, I've uh, never had that experience where an editor was like, here, you should use this metaphor instead in this specific really? instance. I've well, never had a suggestion yeah. like that in my writing. That feels intrusive. It was very weird. I'll tell you who it is offline. It may be or not from the keyboard days. But uh, all right. So in any event, editors, good stuff all around. Okay. So once you get done editing your book, you might have to deal with a little bit of imposter syndrome. Okay. So this is from entrepreneur entrepreneur not, not, a, not a speaker of the french are you no not so much man remember that <laughs> that thing you got going with the english oh yeah no i know yeah, yeah that's that's me and the french i've been there three times and it's a very <laughs> weird place okay so four expert backed strategies for overriding imposter syndrome and boosting confidence now, this is written by a a tekken tank let's see number one Number one is remind yourself of past wins. Now, the feeling of not being good enough is prevalent among high-achieving people, but the right kind of performance thinking is reminding yourself of past successes. Does that work with you guys when you're trying to, to escape your imposter syndrome, remembering what you did good in the past? Well, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's scientific that when you recall memories about a certain thing, you're more likely to experience the emotions that you experienced when you were doing that thing that you're now remembering. So if you're remembering a time when you were awesome, it's going to help you naturally feel a little bit more awesome. And since Nick generally remembers times when he's awesome, you're feeling pretty good all the time. Is that right, Mr. Nick? I'm not sure I've ever had a time where I wasn't awesome. <laughs> My man. That's, that's what I like about you, man. You My imposter good. syndrome is more like, man, I wish I knew what it was like to be imperfect so I could experience yeah. what these normies like go through. I, I think they call that super, Superman syndrome, but that's what it is. Yeah. The other no, thing I, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously joking. <laughs> uh, I have crippling anxiety and imposter syndrome is one manifestation of it. So I, I agree. I think Jim's right. Scientifically proven that helps put the positive twist on the negative shit. Yeah. It just really gets you out of your own mind. I think sometimes, but I do that. 
Yeah, I think yeah, it's okay. cathartic. Right on. Let's see. So number two is override your doubts. And I feel like this is a little bit of an extension. In the last couple of weeks, we had a talk similar to this. I think it was about your healthy inner critic. And Jim had mentioned something about it's kind of like confine your critic to your shoulder and maybe don't listen to him as much. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But it's kind of reminds me of this, right? And I remember reading this before I ever started writing. It's by Maya Angelou. And she said, I've written 11 books, but each time I think, uh-oh, they're going to find out now. I've run a game on everybody and they're going to find me out. So I remember reading that before I was writing, as I was first starting to write many years ago. And I remember thinking, like, if Maya Angelou feels inadequate, what hope do I ever have <laughs> of not feeling inadequate? So that was interesting. Is that something you guys struggle with, the feelings of inadequacy? Or are you able to, like Jim said, compartmentalize them as you go on? I know that this isn't exactly your inner critic, but I think that's probably related to imposter. Yeah, I'm not very good at it, but uh, that is the strategy. I wish I was better at the compartmentalization part, but I'm not. My mind is all kind of one melting pot of good and bad and everything in between. So, I mean, here it says this article compares lack of self-confidence to imposter syndrome and says they're the same thing. And I was thinking about that. Are is imposter syndrome the same thing as a lack of confidence? And I was thinking maybe imposter syndrome is it's like a specific application of a lack of confidence. You can't have imposter syndrome unless you're also having some kind of success. So imposter syndrome is having success while also experiencing the self-doubt. So maybe that's the thing to think about is that if you weren't having any success, you wouldn't be experiencing the imposter syndrome. So something is going right for you in order for you to at least be feeling these feelings. That's a good, yeah, that's good. That's a good word. That'll preach. (laughs) I like it. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So there's a couple more of these later, more kind of imposter syndrome things. And uh, take a look at the show notes. They're pretty interesting. They've got some some little tips for you. Ask yourself, have you ever produced good work in suboptimal conditions? And I think that, you know, we've probably all done that at some point with our books. All right. Story number three. We've got from the Writer's Digest, 10 Myths About Writing Crime, acclaimed author, Ron Franchelle shares 10 myths about crime writing and debunks them to help you along your storytelling journey. Now, you guys, I would say that thrillers and crime are kissing cousins. We may have some elements of crime in some of our stories. Let's see. Have you guys had a chance to take a look at this list? Is there anything that you want to bring up? Because if not, I'll start running my way down the list here. We can chat about them. I, these are all really great things. I would highly recommend that if you are writing crime fiction or thriller fiction or mysteries or any kind of detective or cop fiction or anything where you need to involve these kind of official people, I really recommend the writer's detective podcast. That is a very solid source of myth busting. Adam Richardson is a California cop who runs that podcast is a very deep, soothing voice, good podcast voice, which is an important part of listening to a podcast. I went to the Writers Police Academy a few years ago, and that was an amazing experience that busted open a lot of myths that I had. I was able to like actually see what it looks like when cops are raiding a house by we have simulated rays where all these b- bunch of little writers, all these little grandma biddies with their notepads and pencils, and we're like going through a house while the cops are screaming, Get the 
fuck down. <laughs> it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. It was days and days of that, of like being in there, wow. like talking with coroners, talking with, talk to people from the ATF, FBI. It was a really great experience where a whole bunch of writers were able to go there with all of our dumb questions. Mm. Um, like there was, we were talking to, uh, we were on this simulated raid and they were saying, like, the cops are going to go in this room. They're going to say, this room's clear. And then they're going to wait for their buddies to say, clear here, clear there. And one of the cops just goes, what would happen if one of the bad guys just shouted out clear? And the cop stopped for a second. And he thought, bad guys don't do that. Hmm. <laughs> like, he said, yeah. bad guys run and they hide. They're not smart yeah. like that. It's like yeah. only a writer would think that way. Yeah. So would, would you put that in a book then and have a bad guy do that? Because it would be a good twist. Cops haven't thought of it. And. It seems, yeah, it seems like it wasn't something that he would have expected. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. What uh, What about you, Nick? Did any of these particularly catch your eye? Yeah, no, uh, myth number five I think is hilarious. That This myth that cops have these fabulous computers, databases, and fancy war rooms. <laughs> and the fact is it just says, no, they don't. <laughs> Maybe their computers are better than yours, but they still freeze up. And my argument is they are absolutely not better than mine. Most of these guys, you go to a precinct, these computers are like Windows 7, not any better than anybody else's. Yeah. Uh, they don't, and I love the line, nobody has glitzy big screen murder boards. No. The funny thing is, when you, see, um, <laughs> you see you see it like on 24, right? It's like they just pop up a screen, they put yeah. in somebody's number or whatever, and they find them immediately, right? Yeah. And it's, dude, do you That's know right. how many so when you factors there are? <laughs> yeah, they're you like, know? okay, this all has to happen in the span of 24 hours. We'd still be waiting on that trace, man. Like, you yeah. gotta, <laughs> cell phone companies don't work over the weekend, even if you've got a uh, subpoena. They're not always. I, just, I thought that was funny because I, I know enough about competing stuff that I'm like, yeah, there's probably some pretty fancy stuff at the government level, I mean, at the, the federal level, but probably not at, like, the local even PIs or detectives who have access to, you know, private stuff, but it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Here's my thing though. My, my takeaway from all this is uh, we just finished watching the first season of Reacher. Which I loved my wife, not so much, but it's just not her genre. She's not really into action as much. I thought it was great. It, it followed the book, the first book, which I thought was really cool because most, most precious freaking Hollywood writers have to change shit up and then they ruin it. Right. We all know that. So they didn't, they added enough in. My point is I, I wonder how much of this stuff, isn't accurate, but makes better writing. Does that make sense? Sure. You may not wake, wake up in a bloody tub missing your kidneys. That's one of the myths. So to write about that would be inaccurate because that has literally quote unquote never happened. But wouldn't that make a good story anyway? So shouldn't we write about that stuff? Isn't that why we do it in TV? Because it makes better entertaining TV yeah. rather than waiting around for a, for a skip trace to come back in. Then why not do it quickly? If it's not part of the plot to take a long time. So I just, I wonder how much of this is, we've got to use our writer discretion too. I was on a panel once with um, Alan Baxter, who's a trained black belt and some probably Tai Chi. And he's, he's been in fights. He's been in real fights before and simulated ones as well. And he was like, it's inaccurate. Any fight that lasts longer than 10 seconds is just inaccurate. Just, that's not how it works. Usually people who don't fight normally, they're one, they get hit once and they're down. And I was like, oh, I get it. And that's true. But doesn't it make better? more entertaining action if the action lasts longer. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't, it's depending on how, how accurate you want to be. Yeah. I don't know. I bounced for a long time when I was going through college. I definitely saw a lot of fights that took longer than, than 10 seconds. Um, yeah. Okay. But to be fair, they also don't look like the way that we portray them in movies, right? It's not a couple right hooks with well-timed uppercut. Like it's more Will Smith slap and Chris Rock yeah. stumbling back and then yeah. being like, wait, and then they, 
they scuffle and hug for 10 seconds. Yeah. I will say that the time that it did look like a movie was there was a guy who was in the club that I was working at and I was on a stage and I'll just make this quick. I don't want to waste our time here. I was on the stage. No, no. I'm like, this is some backstory that we have never gotten before. I want to know what you were doing on that stage. I was watching. No, I was watching that. Watching country singer? I I do have a twang when I try. But (laughs) so I stand on the stage because I have an elevated position to watch things from. So I'm standing on the stage and this guy comes in the club. He's about 6'4", probably about 2.30 or so. And he's drunk as a skunk. And by the time I get over there, because you can always tell the people who are going to cause a problem. By the time I get over there, he's laying people out. All right. And I don't mean like multiple punches. I mean, he's like reaching out and hitting people's chins and their temples. And he's flicking their lights off. And I've never seen anything like it before or since. Jeez. And so, yeah, the rest of the guys, we all run over there. He's he is he probably lays seven or eight people out completely cold. All right. So I jump on a beer tub behind him and choke him unconscious. And as we're scuffling, he has this huge tattoo on his chest of these boxing gloves. And he's got this like he's got these like dates and stuff. And I don't think anything of it. And we drag him out of the club. And then when he comes back later that night and does this thing that some guys like to do where they want to be like, I'm sorry, I caused problems, whatever, da, 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 I'm sober now. And I was like, dude, I've never seen anybody throw hands like that. And he's always the golden glove winner in Detroit for four or five years straight. You know what I mean? And I was like, oh, that's real fighting, like what this individual yeah. did. Jeez. So to your point about it not lasting well, but long. To my point, you know? this guy was laying people out. That was far less than 10 seconds per fight. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. To your yeah, point, yeah, like yeah. It's, it's quick. You know what I mean? Like real fights don't train people don't last that long. I mean, Tyson himself, he was like, yeah, all, what is it? The plans are great until you first time you get punched in the face. Yeah. Everybody's got a plan. There's a certain amount of realism that, that people expect, but there's sometimes realism gets too much. Like I, in one of my first books there, but a young woman and her father died and her, her inheritance is an important part of the story. And I didn't realize as I started writing it that the scene you see in the movie where they bring everybody into the courthouse and there's one person up at the front who reads the will, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in real life. That's a t- that's made up by Hollywood. Yeah. And so what I had the character do, what normally happens in real life is that the, she just received a letter that explained mm-hmm. what her part of the inheritance was. And some of my beta readers were like, why is it this way? This feels yeah. weird. Why yeah. doesn't she go to a place where they tell her what she gets? I was like, because that doesn't happen in real life. That's a myth. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my pet peeves being an audio guy and a background in music and all that is um, literally anytime somebody grabs a microphone in any show or movie, it's going to go first. And then everyone's attention is going to be on the front stage. And I'm just like, that just doesn't happen. And like that sound guy would be fired every time if it fed back for no reason, (laughs) except somebody's behind it now. Like that's just doesn't make any sense. (laughs) <laughs> right on well all right guys i'm looking up at the time and it looks like we are getting to a good a good point so you guys got anything you want to add about this uh situation here this situation of newsly situation negatory nope. uh-huh. boy bueno, bueno. all right for all of us at author news weekly i'm Ari mcgee saying this meeting is over goodbye everybody